Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, with me, but not actually in the same room with me, is Ellie Mistal. How are you? It's spring. I no longer have to wear pants until like October. Woo! I mean, I don't know though that's true, I mean, for my sake, but it definitely is true that it's much, much nicer here in New York City than it has been for quite some time. And I'm sure that's true of whatever suburban hole you live in. I'm a shorts and sexy legs kind of guy. Well, all right then. Yeah, so it's been a little cool and rainy, but... Seems as though this is going to hold for at least 24 hours uh, before it starts raining again. Boo. Why do you just, why are you just harshing on my good times? Because I believe in meteorology. Yeah, well, mm. that's why you're a sad person. Yeah, the future, I mean, the future's coming, so it'll, it will be nicer eventually. Let's do our thing so I can go outside and play. Yeah, all right. Well, our thing, as usual, begins with you complaining about something, but maybe you're in too good a mood to do that, which would really disrupt our flow. Oh, I have something to complain about. It's okay. really simple this week, Joe. What's grinding my gears this week is candy-ass Senate Democrats. All right? The Republicans in Congress are obstructing Obama's nominee to the Supreme Court. They have refused to do their job and even take a vote on this guy. And what is the Senate Democrats' response? Oh, I don't know. I just saw them pass the 9-11, let's sue every country we don't like bill unanimously. I see them working with the Republicans to pass Zika virus funding. This is why we lose. Why are they working with the Republicans? If Republicans aren't going to work with the Democrats, Democrats just put a flag in the mud and say, no, we're not going to work on you with anything. We have to be able to fight them. But instead, instead, candy-ass Democrats are like, Oh, boy, that Mitch McConnell sure is a mean guy. I sure hope the voters are more angry about it than we are. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, well, these are the people that Democrats tend to vote for, for whatever reason. Uh, the term that you're using seems to describe, like, most of that party's upper echelon. Uh, you look... But let's be honest, obstructing a Zika virus funding is absolutely ridiculous over any sort of issue. And I would note that the Republicans tried to disrupt it to get some writer on it about some other policy. Like, oh, yeah, no, they tried to put a writer on it to abolish Obamacare. So obstructing disease funding is probably not a winning issue. Nope. I would bring Michael and Slefloffic kid to me to the Senate floor and hold him up and be like, Vote on my Supreme Court nominee. Bob Dole sat in the Senate well, and they forced every Republican to walk up past him and vote against him for dying of a disease that he had, and nobody cared. I don't think there's any actual thing that can produce shame at this point. But no, but honestly, I mean, I like Merrick Garland as much as the next guy, but does anybody... Does anybody really care all that much? Honestly, the Democrats at this point are getting, to the extent they're getting anything out of this, they're getting as much as they are going to get out of it by dragging this out. Getting him nominated is, 
I mean, that's the end of it as an issue, and it potentially locks them into somebody that a lot of them think isn't the right guy. So from their perspective, this is great. But it's not about Merrick Garland. It's not about the Supreme Court even. It's about the Republicans simply refusing to work, simply refusing right. to do their job. And the Democrats' only response to that is, man, that's not right. Screw yeah. that. Screw that. You fight fire with fire. You draw a line in the sand and you force these guys to do their job. Right. Well, that that's – yeah, sure. That would be super. Unfortunately – this is one of those rare instances where I'm going to take the Democrats' side on this. I think they have calculated that this is, to the extent it has any value, it has more value to them as a campaigning tool, and they're just going to roll with that. How very triangulation of you. I mean, yeah, I don't necessarily think that's the world's best way of dealing with every political problem in the world, but right now, honestly, they don't really gain anything. Like The cases that are coming up for the rest of this term, it's not like Merrick Garland showing up changes any of those. He can't vote on cases he didn't hear. From their perspective, this is done. Just move on. We'll use this for the future. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, this is why I'm not going to be elected to office anytime soon, but this is yeah. also why the Democrats are going to have a big trouble taking back the Senate to say nothing of the House. Because oh, yeah. when they ha- because they don't know, they aren't, it's the classic space ball lines, right? Evil will always triumph over good because good is dumb. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of that. And there's a little bit of just downright cynicism about the process, which in some instances is the right move, in some instances isn't. But like, look, it's... So it's what it is. They, it's weird to suggest that they are going to somehow change the nature of the rest of this term by getting their person in. It's not. It's over. Nothing's going to happen till the future anyway, so you may as well just wait till this plays out. Sure, you might be able to get a few cases heard at the very beginning of an October term, but all the important ones are going to be heard towards the end of that term by the time this is all said and done one way or the other anyway, so... Cut your losses, use it as a propaganda tool. Let's talk about a system that does work. Uh, Sure. Uh, And that system that does work is us. We are the system that works, aren't we? I believe so. By the time this this airs, we will have published our 2016 Above the Law Law School rankings. Um, We're very excited about them. And so we've brought on our ATL Director of Research, Brian Dalton, to kind of talk us through how we go about telling people which law school to go to. So, hello. Hello, Ellie. Hello, Joe. Thank you for having me on your program about weather and politics. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. We, we cover all the major issues. You really do have range. I would like to just object to the idea that classic and space balls are in the same sentence ever. Um, <laughs> but- hey, they're getting a sequel. They're getting a sequel? That's what I heard. What? Yeah. All right. That's awesome. But yeah, no, so uh, so yeah, we cover the big issues, but what we want to talk about is, yeah, how do you choose where you go to law school? The classic way of doing that has always been the U.S. News and World Report ranking, which tells you where to go based on how many books they have in their library, and we disagree. So we've come up with something different. We certainly do disagree, and we take a an almost ideologically opposed stance to the U.S. News standard of, of counting inputs and in trying to measure inputs. And we focus exclusively on various types of outcomes, especially and importantly, employment outcomes. So our list is meant to be a handy guide to the schools that are doing the best job of 
placing their graduates in real legal jobs. To many, that would seem so self-evidently the point of law school, but apparently that's not quite um, that's not quite a universally held uh, you know view about how to how to evaluate the relative standing of these institutions. I would think that for many, the point of law school is to spend three more years where you don't have to get a job and earn a living. <laughs> well, there's that. So, Brian, who's the best this year? Who won? Who won? Um, coming in at number one this year is a little uh, school in New Haven called Yale. So some will feel, some of your colleagues either in the editorial staff will feel that the balance to the universe has been restored. Yale slipped a little bit last year for whatever reason in their uh, employment score. But this year they bounced back and uh, they're on the top of our ATL top 50 law school rankings. Ah, the Connecticut School of Law and Supreme Court Justices. Exactly. Uh, um, I guess my first question, Brian, is why does Yale always win? Um, As you said, you know, Yale dipped last year in our rankings, um, which was kind of shocking. But they're the leader in the clubhouse. Most years we do these rankings, they're the leader in the clubhouse most times. U.S. News uh, does the rankings. One way that you can tell whether or not a person has anything, any idea about law school is if you ask them what the best law school is. If they say Yale, they they have paid attention a little bit. If they say anything else, uh, you can tell that they are just uh, – they haven't seriously thought about – going to law school at all? Sure. Why is Yale always number one? Well, I think because law school prestige or reputation is kind of a self-fulfilling and self-reinforcing prophecy. I mean, it's the ranking themselves that drive reputation. And that's not to say that Yale isn't deservedly the most uh, highly respected law school it's just that when a U.S. News asks law school deans to, you know, assess the relative merits of dozens and dozens of institutions about which he or she has no real knowledge or only the vaguest sort of hearsay, you know, they rely on the, really the only source of detailed information at their disposal that assesses the relative merits of all these institutions, and that is the reputational piece of the U.S. News ranking. Um, so it's just kind of a feedback loop of sorts. And that, again, Yale's obviously an amazing uh, institution and, and all its accolades are well-deserved, but we are, I think, appropriately skeptical of reputational assessments driving um, these kinds of uh, law school rankings. Sure, but even when you drop out reputational assessments, as we do with the ATL rankings, Yale is still number one, which means that uh, basically when employers are asked uh, what law school is the best, they're saying, well, I want to hire a Yale graduate um, as much as I want to hire a graduate from any other institution. That is certainly true. I think uh, you could take out the as much as and substitute more than. (laughs) Sorry, UConn. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's definitely true. I guess there's... The problem that I see is this gets to all sorts of statistical nerddom, I suppose, but there's a lot of conflation of different factors going on. I mean, part of it is this feedback loop of people go to Yale, come out, hire Yale people, and then surprise, surprise, they all think they're great. Right, sure. But there's also something to be said for some substantive differences. I mean, the quality of fellow students who are part of the cooperative learning process, as well as the professors that those schools demand to be up there to teach you, are just 
objectively going to be better than going to, say, Arizona Summit Law School, which, you know, stands on the precipice of potential de-accreditation. Sure. Yeah. And so I'm kind of being devil's advocate here that on some grounds, prestige isn't the worst thing in the world. Uh, and I have reasons why it may be bad, but it's not the worst thing in the world to the extent it's not just, as we were kind of making it sound, a arbitrary, everybody likes Yale, so therefore Yale gets to be number one. Certainly not. It would be going way too far to say that this idea of prestige, as nebulous as it might be in sort of defining exactly what it means, has no connection to quality. Of course it does. But that only goes probably so far down the hierarchy of law schools where it sort of stops being meaningful after about a dozen or maybe 20 institutions. And then we, it, it's more helpful to look at more objective data points because the firsthand information, the firsthand experience with the professors and the graduates and, and the people affiliated with the school just sort of thins out and it's all purely based on reputation. Does it stop being meaningful after maybe not 20, but does it stop mean, being meaningful after two or three schools? I mean, look, we started talking about earlier, uh, Joe and I, about uh, tangentially talking about the Supreme Court. Does it bother anybody that the entire U.S. Supreme Court comes from two or three law schools all the time? I mean, yeah. does it bother me personally? Not really, um, <laughs> because that's how quality, however you want to define it, and achievement are filtered through the legal education system and the legal profession. And I mean, I, I don't know if you want to argue that their point of view is excessively narrow, that it doesn't include folks from NYU or Duke or Penn or something, or whether it's not reflective of, I mean, I don't want the general population necessarily represented on the Supreme Court. That perhaps is an elitist idea. I don't think it is. But do you think it's a problem? Do you think that that goes toward uh, sort of lessening the kind of stature or effectiveness or whatever we're trying to get at um, of the court's work that they all went to Yale or Harvard? Well, yeah, absolutely. We had a study done a couple of years ago. I can't remember exactly which think tank did it, potentially Constitutional Accountability Center, I can't remember, but uh, that went through and explained that as the as the academic credentials of the justices who, and actually the entire federal judiciary, started to narrow more and more into a professionalized class with very similar professional and academic backgrounds, the level to which the federal judiciary became much more hostile to individuals and much more friendly to corporations, business entities, the law enforcement, all these started to coalesce around the time that we started building a professional class that obviously lawyers are a professional class no matter where you go, but that stopped valuing somebody who, a public interest defender like a Louis Brandeis and started valuing, even or if- Thurgood you're Marshall. Or Thurgood Marshall, you're an outsider to the extent that you demographically are an unlikely person to have gone to Yale, but nonetheless went to Yale. Yeah, I think that the problem, if there's a problem, I think the problem is less where these people come from. You know, I'm not going to – I can't actually make a great argument for why instead of just looking at Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, the Supreme Court should be looking at people who graduated from Cornell or Northwestern, given that the difference between a Cornell 
um, law student and a Yale law student is, you know, eight points on the LSAT or whatever. I'm not going to make a huge case about, you know, why do these spots not go to the people who scored eight points less on the LSAT? It's like, why did these spots not go to the people who couldn't get, who wanted to, but couldn't get into the schools that are represented? I mean, that's just like yeah. a, a silly right. distinction. You would have to go down to, um, down, it's poor cho- word choice maybe, but you'd have to include, you know, the great public land-grant university institutions, your Ohio States and Wisconsin's, whatever, perhaps to maybe reach the kind of, I don't know, viewpoint diversity that Joe was referring to. But I, I don't know. I mean, so, so, that, but, but so just there's to no finish, way to but, institute that um, that I can imagine. Well, we could, we could, we could, you know, we could, we could elect president who thought about this differently, right? Because the, right. the the issue that I really have, again, it's not by where they went to school, but it's about the experiential sameness of the Supreme Court. Maybe there's there's a great potentially Yale law graduate who, instead of going directly into academia and then directly to an appellate court and then uh, made his bones at the appellate court or her bones at the appellate court and now is nominated for the Supreme Court, maybe instead of that, there's a Yale grad who went off to work for I don't know, you know, the EPA and did you know actual casework suing China over global warming, and maybe that's the person that we need on the court, somebody who really comes from a different uh, a different kind of training, not school training, but life training. Okay, but I think despite the sort of um, the credential homogeneity of the court, I mean, the court has Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Clarence Thomas. I, I'm trying to think of sort of more um, examples of variety because maybe my argument falls off after that. <laughs> there are... Um, you know, they're, they're not all cookie-cutter, you know, Italian Catholic guys who went to Harvard. Certainly not, but I, I not think— Not anymore. I think Ruth is the best counterexample there because— Ruth? Uh, you're on first-name basis now? Yeah, oh, totally. Um, but with Thomas and Sotomayor, you've got people who went to Yale for law school with— uh, I can't remember everything that Thomas did before he ended up— uh, I know it was at least government jobs with the EEOC. I've heard about those. And then ultimately, uh, the appellate court. But I mean, she went through a period of working as a federal prosecutor, as I recall. So it's eventually gets channeled into, no matter where they begin, channeled into a professional track with, you know, kind of traditional approaches. Obviously, Justice Ginsburg goes a different direction having worked for, you know, now and stuff. But Mm -hmm. Okay, so we know that if you want to end up as a Supreme Court justice, our rankings are very helpful in telling you where to go to school. Um, <laughs> Brian, I want you to make the case, so, so uh, just so everybody knows, the ATL ranking, we only rank the top 50 schools, and we only rank the top 50 schools because we're trying to, for better or worse, look at schools that have some kind of national pull. Exactly. Uh, so, Brian, I want you to make the case for a student who should go to a school that is not ranked by us. Okay. Um, okay. There's a couple different ways to phrase that question. One way is uh, sort of a yes or no. Should you go to a, a lower ranked law school? Yes or no, you must choose one. The answer, gun to our heads, no. No, of course not. Agreed. Don't be an idiot. Exactly. Just because it's a math problem and the odds are not in your favor. Correct. So putting aside kind of a binary choice type of thing, Yes, it makes sense to go to a lower tier school 
you know, despite the fact that the cost of attending law school has become so great, the job security is and the job market is so unstable and, and fraught, if you don't get into a top school, that is. But if you meet a set of conditions, sure. If you have no desire whatsoever to work at a, a big law firm or become a professor or pursue any of these paths that are large, you know, in, in reality are, are largely irrelevant to the overwhelming majority of lawyers anyway, then it's not some kind of career suicide to go to a lower tiered school. I mean, caveat, as long as you're not paying sticker price and or, uh -huh. let's just say and, not taking on considerable debt, and then those would be the primary considerations. And then to a lesser degree, are you the sort of person who can kind of network effectively? Do you have like a normal set of social skills, which isn't a given with the law school aspiring segment of the population? And finally, are you, you know, smart and disciplined enough to graduate, at least say in the top half of your regional law school? If you can meet all those conditions, you'll probably be fine long term. But of course, the problem, as study after study has shown, it's the dimmer ones who are more likely to sort of wildly overrate their own abilities. It's kind of like the special snowflake syndrome, but for dumb people. And so it's, it's this kind of advice is completely lost on the, you know, the very people who might save themselves a ton of grief by heeding it. But my answer is sort of a qualified yes, but if you can, and then the principal focus is on um, not really putting yourself in a hole because there really are no job prospects for you that allow you to dig out of that hole if you build up a big debt burden because you're not going to get a big law job. Um, and that debt's you're not talking dischargeable. You're talking a lot about the employment outcomes. Joe, I'm wondering, you know, is there any uh, kind of the tapestry of the educational environment? Is that perhaps different or worthy at some of these lower-ranked schools? And I'm asking you because even though you went to NYU for law school, you did go to Oregon or the Aleutian mm -hmm. Islands or somewhere for college. Yeah. What is the value from a kind of educational experience perspective of kind of going to a place that's, you know, a little bit off the Ivy or wannabe Ivy track? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, there's several of them in, up to and including having a decent football team. But but no, I actually, I went to Oregon as an Oregon resident and walked out of that school having paid for everything and having no debt and still walking into a T14 and indeed at the time T5 law school. Uh, so I was, as far as the profession I was going down the road of, I was not hindered at all by the experience. It's different in that there are, but a public university like that, that is, you know, tens of thousands of people, it's going to carry a lot of folks who are not really going to uh, excel at the most difficult levels, but are able to get a genuinely decent education to go on and do whatever they're going to do. And it almost always has a rising to the top click of people who take the advanced seminars with the grad school folks, and you get to have a very good experience with other students who excel and other good professors, because remember, a lot of those universities, big though they are and catering to rock for jocks though they do, their grad schools tend to be the more, in academic subjects, tend to be more prestigious. So you can have the access to good education that way. That's different from how the law schools operate, which almost, you're never going to find a law school that is operating in the tens of thousands. They're always specialized and small, and the people who are there, to the extent you find 
leaders and great folks in the field teaching at them, you're either going to catch somebody on their way up the academic chain who's going to be off at Yale in 10 years anyway, or you're going to be catching somebody who is an adjunct who barely has time, but is a great practitioner in the region. But you're not going to have nearly as many opportunities to have a click rise to the top or the great professors that you get to when you're trying to get your undergraduate degree at a large, massive institution. Hmm. That makes some sense to me. I think that what Joe said is very interesting and and sort of underscores why I think that law school rankings, U.S. News, Us, other other versions, are actually have utility. And college rankings, where they're ranking, you know, Penn State versus, you know, Yeshiva, are largely worthless because— An institution like Oregon, it's a comprehensive, heterogeneous place that has a lot, it serves a lot of different constituencies and a lot of different, um, the, the people there have different goals. The cream's rising, as you, as you noted, Joe. And to make an apples-to-apples apples comparison among undergraduate institutions is really, really problematic in a way that doing the same thing to law schools is not, because everyone there is there for ostensibly the same purpose at least in terms of the type of degree. Why do you think employers place so much emphasis on the institutional reputation of your law school as opposed to kind of developing or coming up with a way um, to track your, your actual kind of value and ability as a practicing lawyer? Because the other part of this argument, right, is that, yeah, okay, so you're going to hire people from the law schools that we rank. You're going to hire people from the ATL top 50 law schools. You're going to hire people from HYS, uh, Harvard, Yale, Stanford. And then if you're a big law employer, an amazing amount of them are going to leave three or four years in after you, the employer, has invested all of this time, money, and effort into them. And they have used you, the employer, uh, to pay off their debts before going off to do what they really want to do. Why are firms kind of so slow on the uptake about that. There's got to be a better, more efficient economic way for them to acquire new talent. Rather than relying on the prestige of the incoming person's credential? Yes. Well, I'm not sure if what you said is exactly right, because to really examine somebody's ability to come in and practice is going to take so much more energy, and they're going to have to burn so many more calories in making those kinds of assessments than just using the brand of the school as a, as a rough proxy, where they, they tend to be right more often than not that the person's going to work out. That doesn't speak to the revolving door among junior associates and what an economically irrational system that is. But in terms of taking in new people, there is a logic to it, and it is it does have its own efficiencies. You know, the effect of, you know, you, you know Bill Henderson has written a lot about how the profession has a, a pedigree problem you know, goes on about how snobism and elitism are like sort of the last socially acceptable prejudices. And the obsession with prestige kind of paralyzes the career prospects of a lot of new lawyers and also damages arguably the profession itself or the industry itself. Because, you know, in a time, you know, where demand for legal services is flat, firms are squabbling over, you know, market share. Like, how does it make sense to hire somebody to, you know, in the tax department who has no passion for it, but is just doing it because it's a prestigious, you know, next step. I mean, that doesn't do anybody a service in a time of kind of like market stagnation. And Henderson, you know, 
has analyzed this in a way that, that concludes that it's kind of an economic tax, really. Hmm. Last question. Um, and I know I didn't prepare you for this, so, so apologies for putting you on the spot a little bit, Brian. Um, oh, God. <laughs> do you have an opinion on the brain drain? Um, as I looked at our rankings, I didn't see I didn't see a brain drain effect yet. I came back from uh, from NALP, the big uh, National Association um, of, of Law Placement Conference, last month, and there were a lot of panels at NALP talking about the brain drain. That is, as law school applications have dipped precipitously, law schools are filling their seats by admitting people with lower testing scores, um, lower GPAs uh, to keep filling the seats. At some point, there's a sense that that brain drain, that that kind of lack of talent at the bottom of the class is really going to catch up to these law schools and catch up to employers. Yet nobody is is seeing kind of statistical evidence of that happening yet. And I surely didn't see it in our rankings, it happening. Uh, do you have thoughts on whether or not it's going to happen? Well, I would agree um, with you that it. I think it's a very real thing, obviously. Just look at the enrollment numbers and look at the desperate measures that sort of lower tiered schools are going just to put butts in seats. But it, it hasn't yet reached the top schools and it hasn't yet reached the top big law firms might be, you know, looking at smaller numbers of qualified candidates, but they're still filling classes, which have contracted anyway, for reasons outside of, you know, reasons that are not peculiar to, you know, the vagaries of law school education enrollment. But is it coming? Um, In the sense, I mean, it's a very complicated question. I think ultimately there's going to be a great sort of like painful contraction in both the number of law schools and the number of law firms. The T14 and the New York white shoe firms, they will endure, of course, but uh, the folks caught in the middle are just going to be, you know, they're just going to die out like dinosaurs because because of technology, because of changing modes of delivering legal services. I mean, we can make a list, and we make lists all the time about, you know, all, all of the coming disruptions. Robot lawyers. Yes, be. exactly. Of course. Yeah. Joe just uh, just wrote a piece about the new AI lawyer at, I can't remember the firm. Baker Hostetler has a right, Baker Hostetler. IBM. It's basically the old Watson that won Jeopardy a few years ago has now been repurposed to fulfill bankruptcy law duties and is now one of their associates, basically. Yeah, why not? I got to think that eventually this catches up to the schools that are mid-tier. It seems to me that, as you say, Brian, that the the top schools are going to be fine and the top firms are still going to hire from the top schools, and that's going to be fine. At the kind of lower end, at the schools that can get are really offering people full scholarships, they're going to get good people going to their schools on a full ride because it's free. And as you were talking about earlier, free is worth a hell of a lot in this economy. But the schools in the middle tier who need to fill at least the back end of their classes with people paying full freight from every indication based on GPAs and LSAT, that quality is just going very is, – is going down. And so I, w- I would imagine that at some point, the kind of bottom 50% of your class at – you know, a mid-tier school. Let's take Aslaw, right? Let's take uh, George Mason University, which recently renamed itself Antonin Scalia School of Law. Um, asshole. Um, if you look at that school, the bottom 50% of that class, like where's the bottom 50% of that class going to get jobs three years from now, five years from now? Well, I don't think that they, I don't think that they do. Yeah. 
I mean, I think it's a, I think for the the cohort you're describing, the prospects are really grim. There's no way to sugarcoat it. The end is nigh. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of just want to leave just any episode right there. The end is nigh. The end is nigh. And just be done with that. Repent, lower tier law students. <laughs> yeah, no. So that's that's great news to end on. Okay, so. Thanks so much, Brian, for joining us to talk about the rankings. Thank you, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And if you want to read up on the rankings, they will be on AboveTheLaw.com. You'll see them. They will be on that front page for quite some time by the time you hear this. And you can check them out, argue about them, hit us up on social media to complain about them. The account is at ATL blog. And we're also, we have a page on Facebook that you can like and complain. Or you could hit up just uh, the two of us. I'm at Joseph Patrice and he's at L-E-N-Y-C to make fun of that. Uh, And be sure to listen to this episode. Give us a review. Subscribe to us on iTunes or however you kids subscribe to podcasts these days so you get every new episode when they come out. Reviews always help us move up those algorithms that decide what the best and brightest legal podcasts are. So do that too. And uh, I think I just went through my whole huge social media spiel. I think so. All right. You also told people who arguably have already listened to the episode to make sure to listen to the episode, which is fun. Yeah. no, Listen that's to a, it again. That's a good point. Well, I mean, you know, they might be coming in on it at the very end as the whole family's settled around the receiver with the dog listening to the end of our fireside chat. And they might, you know, need to need to hear it from the beginning. The only thing we have to fear is George Mason School of Law. Oh, yes, the ass law. And that is, by the way, for people who don't read Above the Law every every day, which you should, uh, ass law is our new name for George Mason, which has changed its law school name to the Antonin Scalia School of Law, which certainly they didn't check the acronym when they did it. All right, guys, thanks a lot. All right, talk to everyone in the near future. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.